How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. and gentlemen welcome to box office pulp your one-stop podcast for movies madness moxie and tonight more return trips to the future that's right we aren't going to leave you hanging the bop and a movie series marches on with back to the future part two minor spoilers since we're you know already done covering the first back to the future we might just be doing a trilogy of commentaries maybe not given any definite answers on that Anyways, I'm your host, Cody, and joining me on this jaunt into the year 2015 are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. This podcast is Marty on the hoverboard out in the middle of a lake, not able to go farther because he doesn't have power. <laughs> no power. And Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. Uh, most fans don't know this, but I actually shot Biff Tannen in the late 90s. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> You've done good work. Saved us from right. President Biff. Yeah. Just imagine President Biff in Disney's Hall of Presidents as an animatronic. <laughs> hey, buttheads! <laughs> Anyways, folks, you know the deal on commentaries, right? I'm still going to explain it, but just nod your head at home. We're going to watch nod Back to the head. Future 2. Nod your head. You can watch Back to the Future 2 with us if you want. We'll talk over the movie. You can play our podcast over top. You can play it separately while you're at the gym on the treadmill. Maybe you're on a bus on the way home from the gym. Your life, do what you want. So in a couple seconds here, I'm going to give Mike the countdown to start the movie, and we're going to start talking. Before we get into that, though, we've got to go for our official drink. Yes, you remembered. I did. I was, I was doubting it there for a second when you said you were about to hand it off to me seconds from now. Uh, and seconds is a lie because this one's complicated. So the drink for tonight, I pulled out of the Growler magazine uh, and it's called Be My Cheddar Pie. So what you're going to need here is one quarter ounce of cheddar-washed white rum. I'll explain how to make that in a minute. Uh, you're going to need a half ounce of lemon juice. You're going to need three-fourths of an ounce of uh, vanilla cinnamon simple syrup. And three ounces of a dry cider. I'm personally using Freewheeler uh, from Sociable Cider Works. 
which is local to Minneapolis. Uh, but you do you. you. You just find a dry cider. Go crazy. So, to make your cheddar wash white rum, this is going to take a while, so just pause the show, uh, and you'll come back to it in like three days. Uh, <laughs> Great. So, <laughs> first step, you're going to need to get three ounces of cheddar. Uh, I personally used a smoked sharp cheddar, something with a, a lot of flavor, and you're going to melt that. Then, you're going to steep that on top of uh, white rum, like a bottle of white rum, for about five hours at room temperature. Uh, you know, every 20 minutes or so, go and give the bottle a shake. After that five-hour period is done, take your bottle of white rum, mixed with cheese, put it in the freezer until all the fat solidifies. You're going to get like one fatberg that makes a hockey puck kind of thing in, in your jar. Once that's frozen, uh, strain the rum through a cheesecloth so, you know, you don't have that block of fatty cheese remaining, throw that cheese out. You don't need it. You just want the booze. And there you have cheddar-washed white rum. That's going to be rum that tastes a little bit like cheese. It's pretty cool. Anyways, when you're making the drink, you're going to take that cheddar-washed rum, the lemon juice, the syrup, and some ice, throw it all together, shake it briefly, strain it into a Pilsner glass, uh, then add the cider, a little bit more ice, and if you're feeling real fancy, you can garnish it with a brulee apple ring. I did not do that because I am lazy. So, this seems like a lot of work to go through, but it's pretty interesting. Uh, I like it because it mixes future and past, which is the perfect fit for Back to the Future 2. Just think, like, the idea of fat washing is kind of a new trend. So there's your 2015 period of the movie. And it's kind of ridiculous, too. So it also goes along with the hoverboards and Biff having robot parts. But, on the other hand, it's it tastes like a apple cheddar pie. I mean, that's pretty 1950s in my mind. So you got the new, you got the old, it's all mixed together. Unfortunately, I made my uh, rum several months ago, and you're only supposed to keep it for like a week. So it's been in my freezer, it's probably fine, I might die before this commentary ends. We're going to find out now. Let's have a sip of this and see if I'm going to give myself food poisoning. It tastes good. Cody, you are the weirdest second grade science teacher I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thankfully for our audience at home, they got the unique experience of jumping forward two minutes in time whenever they skipped all that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'd like to think they were actually making the drink, so they forgot what you guys sound like because it's been, you know, eight hours <laughs> since they started this process. I'm assuming they had all the ingredients in their house and they just had to mix them. They didn't have to go to the store and buy some smoked sharp cheddar. I like the idea of us having fans so dedicated they build a night out of this commentary. That'd be great. They would, you will, folks at home, you will like this drink. It seems weird. You're like, I like rum and I like cheese. I don't know if I like mixing them. You will. You get the, the taste of rum hits strong and then it has a cheese aftertaste. It's fascinating. It's, it's really cool. Please I, I, tweet I at Box Office Pulp if you made and tried this drink. Yeah, or, or if you don't have Twitter, email us, boxofficepulp at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. Find us, contact us. You know, fuck it. Send a picture of you drinking this and proof that you're still alive. <laughs> Send I... us a photo of you in your car <laughs> drinking this. You remember, folks, as I always say, take a drink of this, get in your car. But here's a question. Aren't you sad after watching Back to the Future Part 2 that hover cars aren't real? Well, take a swig of that, make your car fly. 
you will feel like you're flying is true. And if you get pulled over, just tell the officer, you don't need roads anymore because you can't see them. And whenever they pull you out of the wreckage, you look just like George in this movie. It's all coming together. Anyways, that's enough about drinking. Well, talking about drinking, you should just drink. Let's kick things off. Mike, count us down. Okay. One. Two. Three. Ta-da! Hopefully I pulled up the right movie. <laughs> there should be like 13 different Universal logos here, right? I miss the texture of the Universal and the old Universal logo. It's like it's made out of some kind of golden foil. In so my mind, when I see that logo, think... it smells like stale Play-Doh. <laughs> you see, that, that logo always makes me think I'm about to watch a trashy B-movie. <laughs> and it's universal. I love that. It's like, oh, is this Twilight Zone the movie? <laughs> All right, let's let's get our movie facts out of the way here. All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. I just have one thing I have to say. You're not Jennifer. You're a liar. Who are okay. you? Your wig doesn't fool me. <laughs> You're a legitimately better actress, but I prefer the first one. I agree. I really. It's mean to say. They're both very, very talented. Oh, we'll go into Jennifer stuff later. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I was going to read fun facts instead of sad things. Movies directed by Robert Zemeckis, who you might remember from Back to the Future's Part 1 and Part 3. Screenplay, Bob Gale, once again. Uh, Cast, we still have Michael J. Fox. There's Christopher Lloyd, Lee Thompson, and Tom Wilson, and some other people that replace some people, but we'll get into that. We've got our music by Alan Silvestri, cinematography by Dean Cundy. It was edited by Arthur Schmidt and Harry Karamitis. Pretty much the same crew we had on Back to the Future 1. Right back at it, a couple years later. Uh, budget was $40 million. Box office return was $332 million. $118 million of that was domestic. It was the sixth highest grossing film of the year, third highest worldwide behind Last Crusade and Batman, which is pretty good company. Uh, $27.8 million opening weekend, which broke the record set by Rocky IV in 1985, and then experienced a 56% drop-off the second week, which was devastating. <laughs> Movie was released November 22nd, 1989. And that's all the facts that have ever been compiled about Back to the Future 2. <laughs> you open up the Blu-ray, and it's just that list. <laughs> I have to make each one by hand. It's terrifying. I hope okay. no one else buys Back to the Future. Not to, not to cut in here, but I've always been obsessed with how much Biff wanted Marty to see the match bo- matchboxes <laughs> that he got. Conceivably, they're buds. Like, they're I want to hang out with universe. that Biff. Oh, God, he's dead. I love the fucking cold, open, supervillain origin of Biff here. <laughs> My god, this is the day he first learns of the anti-life equation. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so here we go. It's round two, but this time, it's the dark, moody middle chapter. Bum, bum, bum. That's a weird thought. This is technically their Empire Strikes Back. Very true. I've always kind of wondered about that. Was that something that was picked up from, from Joseph Campbell, like the hero's journey? Like, he has to have the dark middle section, so we'll just make that the second movie? Or is that something Star Wars did, so everyone else just felt they had to do it the same way? 
Star Wars. If you look at a trilogy, the middle one is always the one where things get dark. Well, trilogies weren't really a thing before Star Wars. Like, back before then, if you made three movies, it's just because you gave up after the third one. <laughs> or you go in 3D. <laughs> God, you reminded me of something I wanted to bring up in your list of fabulous Zemeckis facts there. This movie came out in one of the most loaded years in, like, summer-going movie history. Like, we got Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Batman? Yeah, friggin' Batman. Like, this came out in a jam-packed year and still did good. Was it epic Could you imagine being a teenager in 1989 and going to the theater every week? Oh, this was akin like, to uh, uh, 2008, where we got Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, Hellboy 2, and Dark Knight. Or uh, was it 93, 94? I can't remember where. It was like Pulp Fiction, Jurassic Park, yes. Forrest Gump, like all that just laid out in a couple of months. Or 2017, where every movie ever made came out. <laughs> My God, again, to be just be a teenager with all that gestating in your brain as something brand new. I can't imagine that. Yeah, but they didn't have phones, so, you know, fuck them. <laughs> they couldn't talk about it. <laughs> they couldn't go on message boards and talk about it. Also, I, I love how this weird, awkward, terrifying scene is the entire reason we have Rick and Morty. <laughs> like, I know I say that about the the ending of the first movie, but no, this this is literally just the pilot they sent my class. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, we gotta destroy the world, Marty. We're just, we gotta build it back up. I don't know why so you never used that device again. This is my first problem with Back to the Future 2. What do you do with Jennifer? Which is a real shame, listening to Gail and Zemeckis talk about the movie. The first one ended on a joke to them. It wasn't part of their plan for a sequel. And they realize they painted themselves into a corner. So the start of this movie really is them trying to figure out, oh, shit, what do, what do we do with this? Uh, we'll knock Jennifer out for the entire movie. Uh, and we'll go to the future, but just as a pretense so we can get back to the past. And in my mind, that causes a lot of issues with Back to the Future. Just just them trying to struggle through this one to be like, how do we get back to doing what we want to do? Well, that's the original sin of Back to the Future 2, the thing that kneecaps the really strong content that comes later in the movie is is just the, the first act. And yeah. as entertaining as the first act is, it's like this is the one where it's clearly, okay, this, is, this isn't so much filmmaking as it is housekeeping. This first <laughs> act is um, a great episode of um, the uh, live-action Back to the Future TV show. Uh, that was out of time. <laughs> Pretty much. And it's uh, it, the problem with this, uh, the first act is it's pretty much like it's very long. And it's because, you know, you can't jip the audience necessarily on what you didn't promise, but what they think you promised now while you de delivering <laughs> a sequel. Um, but it's. Uh, Ultimately, all um, it is both an epilogue and a prologue. Back to the Future Part Two does not start until 
they go back to alternate 1985. That's when Back to the Future Part 2 actually begins. And this is just Back to the Future 1.5 that is tacked on to Back to the Future Part 2. And that's where it gets awkward. And I found researching this and um, like really examining like this section of the movie separate as a separate entity um, has been an interesting experience where a lot of things I found lazy um, or just like, no, oh, that was a weird decision on their part or the, the, or this or that all pretty much had a, had it had a purpose and existed for uh, specific types of reasons. Uh, for one thing, the future in its design is just one big joke. Like, everybody kind of shits on the future design of this, but but it's... And so did I for years. But finding out that they decided to do is like, ah, it's essentially one big art installation. It's... How I view it now is how the 50s like whenever they would do future stories and design what the future would look like, but it was essentially just, you know, a 1950s art deco, you know, art project. Um, it's, and the future is that, but for the eighties essentially. So it's the, it's the eighties future. So it's just one big joke. Very much so. Like it definitely helps that they just went to their, production designer and said just make weird shit that even we won't understand yeah and they put some thought into it more than i than i expected um so that's why they're getting some bathroom in the future features three seashells (laughs) (laughs) as the one constant that leaks all movie universes every future always has the three seashells if you pay star wars has the three seashells yeah if you look closely in blade runner in deckard's apartment he has the seashells out because he's washing them to put back in the bathroom (laughs) can this be like a meme now just photoshopping the seashells into serious (laughs) science fiction i'm sure like eight people in the world would appreciate that joke (laughs) but Um, uh, my issue and i understand the concept they're going for of well we can't predict the future and this is a comedy. Let's make it as big as we can and kind of jokey as we can. I mean, look, Doc is wearing an invisible tie. <laughs> I, I get what they're going for, and I can see the wisdom in it, because if they tried to do a realistic future, they would totally miss the mark, and this would never work in the actual 2015. But that switch, in my mind, is a huge change to how the comedy is portrayed in the film, and it doesn't click with me in the same way that the original film did. It's much more broad. Uh, I mean, hell, if you look at the the upcoming hoverboard fight, the characters seem even more over the top than they were in the kind of idealized studio lot 1950s that we saw in the first film. Then we get to the alternate 1985, where that's also amped up to 11. And in, in my mind, it all just feels like they went super over the top for everything. And I don't know. It breaks my expectations. I think it's a miracle that the 50s stuff in this movie works as it did, because you kind of think you'd paint yourself into a corner starting so big and so broad in the first two acts. 
only to then just return to the relative tranquility of the third movie. But it's weird how all the stuff that happens in 1955 feels more engaging and more climactic than anything that happens in the previous two acts. Yeah. I think there is also something about this opening um, sort of revealed itself to me. I'm finding that um, the Back to the Future movies... This um, is my favorite part of... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Why don't we have that in real life? Why, Why don't we have posters that attack you? I know. Um, get with it. Also, suck it, Spielberg. Today. <laughs> Directed by his son, which is just like a weird insult because he was like four at the time. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I found the Back to the Future movies are really about nostalgia in a way I've never uh, paid much attention to. Like that's a heavy theme uh, we talked about with uh, with the first film, and you know you you have the idealized 1955 revealing itself to just be the no real different you know it's a different time period but people are pretty much the same you see that here too where it's playing on this it's playing on nostalgia everything is nostalgic for you know the 80s and accidentally predicts the 90s i mean look at this this looks like a fucking 90s cafe um accidentally but it's it's playing on nostalgia where you have marty from the 80s coming in looking at looking at everything going nothing was actually like this <laughs> so it's this idealized nostalgic new generation looking at the at the past and the past generation having designed this facsimile of of what they were a part of which i think sets you up in many ways, for what Back to the Future Part 2 becomes later on, which is a very subtle, very slight deconstruction and revisit of the nostalgia you feel for the events of the first movie, which is why the series uses uh, certain events uh, scenes from, uh, from the first film and repurposes them with uh, slight different changes, like the, like the chase that's coming up here in a bit. It's the same, but slightly different. And I mean, that's that's pretty much the the theme of the entire series in, encompassed. And I used to feel like, oh, that's just them, you know, being cash in. Like that's that's Gale and Zemeckis being like, oh, you know, they they just want more of the same and stuff. But they're like they're doing that, but they're not doing it without a um, a purpose, without without some kind of brain behind it. Because ultimately, when you get to the nineteen fifty five stuff, it, it's the the point of that. Because you can see this entire movie is pointless, but just upping the almanac uh, from getting the hands of Biff doesn't just prevent alternate nineteen eighty five. It also ensures that the ending we loved in Back to the Future, where Marty saves the day and and all that stuff, and you know he flies off with Doc for further adventures and and all that, it's ensuring that still happens. And I think that's a a deconstructionist of time travel stories in, in a way you don't often see. 
That's very well put. I think that's uh, very, very true. And it's very ahead of its time in that way, because, like, starting with Spider-Man 2, it seemed like it became much more in vogue in Hollywood to interrogate people's nostalgia for original movies and their sequels. The yeah. Scream franchise did this uh, in pretty much every sequel as well. And, yeah, this, this is really the first time I can think of any movie doing that. This movie is very um, broken. Um, <laughs> there's no doubting that. Um, there's a reason it's, you know, all the Back to the Future movies are played ad nauseum on TV for, like, decades now. And two's almost always left out of the rotation. It usually just goes one to three. Uh, just because two's so weird and it's got an odd structure, so it's hard to play. Nobody really misses it all that much. But I always thought it was broken because Zemeckis and Gale didn't care or know what to do. But it's it's not that. As originally, they were going to go with something much more simple. When Zemeckis came back from Roger Rabbit, Gale had written a script where, uh, you know, pretty much the same two first acts for the most part. But in the third, they they go to the '60s, and Marty has to, Marty accidentally screws up his own, you know, conception, has to uh, fix things and get the almanac back, and all this other stuff. Okay, and Zeme- the time this series almost went to Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian. Yeah, and Zemeckis looked at it and went. That's just, if we're going to go back to, like, structure the first movie, let's do, like, we have time travel. Let's do something we've never seen before. And Which, ironically, is going to the thing we've seen before. (laughs) Yeah, but in a way, it's unexpected and using the trope of time travel. You don't see many time travel stories where the elements of time travel, how time travel works, can afford you new storytelling avenues. Because it can, but nobody ever uses it because it's very complicated. I That's amazing. appreciate so much that Zemeckis and Gale kind of threw caution in the wind. And, like, this movie's broken in a lot of ways. Um, This is a weird comparison to make, but stay with me. It's kind of broken... Not as, you know, the movie I'm comparing it to is great and works completely. But it's kind of broken the same way Infinity War is broken. Where you're essentially, it's broken because you can't actually compare it to a normal movie. And it's broken for reasons beyond that too, but it's just funny how it's just trying to do something outside of the medium so hard that it fails, but nah, I appreciate that it tried. To backtrack a little bit, I just want to comment on the what an interesting prospect it was must have been writing this and saying, okay, we want a 1980s nostalgia cafe in the year 2015. And they were making this in the 80s, so they had to sit down essentially and say, what do we think will be notable about this time period in 30 years? What are people going to pick up on? And apparently the answer to that was Pepsi and Max Headroom. <laughs> I just love that they, like, in the world of this, you know, t- uh, 2015, people are still really concerned about the Ayatollah. Yeah. 
Uh, that does give you really a lot of perspective to how quickly time flies. I said, can we take just a moment to talk about Griff, <laughs> a.k.a. Tom Wilson having the time of his life being seemingly a character from a 90s beat-em-up side-scroller? This entire movie is one long, let's just give Tom Wilson all of the room in the world to work. This is his Benjamin Button. This is his acting showcase. And every version of Biff is completely different. <laughs> Even when it's the same... It's the same Biff, technically. Like, uh, Trump Biff is completely different than other... Than, uh, original 85 Biff, we say. Old man Biff. <laughs> We're gonna need you to dial it back to Gary Busey's there, buddy. I love how Griff is just a fucking cyberpunk villain in the middle of Back to the Future. This is like every spaceship battle where they just like never stop to think, Ooh. wait, wait, we're in Ooh. space. We can move directly up or down. We don't have to do this like a dogfight. <laughs> Me, personally, I've always been more concerned with why Marty doesn't just jump the five feet. Yeah. There's a but, uh, lot of open questions. He wanted a shower. I can't, I can't watch this scene anymore after listening to the commentary, because all I can see is that her stunt woman on. busting her fucking ass on that column. And just dropping down to the concrete. Ooh. They cut around it the best they could, but they were not going to refilm that after that accident. That's not even like a, if you slow it down and watch it frame by frame. Once you know it's there, it's just how that shot ends. Yep. Ah, monster. <laughs> God damn it, Charles Fleischer. <laughs> Get out of here, Rumpelstiltskin. My favorite deleted scene in this movie is uh, where you realize that he's the uh, repairman who argues with Biff in the 50s, and that him ranting about that is what gives Biff the idea to go back on that specific day and give his younger self the almanac, which implies that stiffing a guy out of two uh, out of $300 was Biff's last great victory. <laughs> like, that's so sad. That was the last time I was Biff. And back to the idea of nostalgia, we now have to spend time in an antique shop. But that instant, baby. So this is an interesting little piece to me. Marty takes the book so he can essentially cheat in his, you know, present day life. He can he can win all the sports bets, make millions of dollars. And we recognize that's bad, but mostly because Biff steals the plan from him and does it himself. So it's it's almost like the movie kind of forgives Marty for wanting to do it because eh, that's our hero. We like Marty. He can he can he could be a jerk. But when Biff does it, oh, the bad guy's doing it now. It's wrong. 
Like, Doc doesn't even shoot Marty out for this, which really weirds me out. Like, goddamn, son, you're messing with the timelines. Well, the thing that's always get gotten me about this is Marty is already rich. Technically, yeah, like, it's eviler that he's doing the almanac. Right? This is just a sad a old man truck. beaten down by life. <laughs> it's interesting Marty learns a lesson secondhand. <laughs> And the big thing in the movie, too, is their introduction of, you're not a chicken, are you, McFly? Like, that's that's his big arc right there, getting over others' perception of him and being able to, you know, let his pride go. Which sucks, because the resolution to that storyline does not appear until Back to the Future Part 3. Which is yeah. another example of this movie really, really just being one that, long story. Yeah. Um... I mean, they they didn't really adjust the script or anything when they split it up. They just chopped off the Old West part and made a cliffhanger. Yeah, because this uh, was originally going to be like a four-hour movie. The chicken thing... Like, yeah, no, go just, on. Just imagine if this was George Lucas. He could just sneak in a couple chicken references in the first movie, and it'd feel so much smoother. I That's would it. say... You have some link to the first movie just with Marty's fear of failure being tied to vanity, essentially. Like it, it does still work as a through line. I'm kind of amazed that they were able to pull it off that well. Yeah. Um it if you go back, it actually does track. Um I actually think that's an interesting thing they did, even though it just it's introduced here and then doesn't have payoff for another movie, which is you know, just an unfortunate thing of you have to watch these back to back. Um, uh, the fact they made it track, though, helps a lot to, I think, something that they're, they're kind of going for with Marty, uh, and it was interesting to hear them talk a little bit about this in the commentary. Marty, in the first film, you know, he doesn't change, he doesn't have a character arc or anything, he's perfect. He's the ultimate teenager. He's super cool, and he's the one who incites change. Just to make another MCU reference, uh, he's Captain America, technically. Everything changes around Marty because of Marty. So, uh, once again, playing on nostalgia, the way this series does, and with going back to the first movie to play it at different angles, um, if you have... You've now in, been introduced to Marty having a character flaw. Um, is people's perception of him and being called a chicken, you know, him having to prove himself. You see, you, you can go back to the first movie and see instances of that, but it's not played as a flaw. It actually helps situations or gets, or, you know, there's comedy to it. And every time he ends up standing up to Biff and occasionally does get him into trouble. Sometimes it endears him more to his mother. Um, <laughs> the funny sentence to say, um, and you, through this, you kind of get to subtly deconstruct Marty McFly, the ultimate teenager, to see that, like, right now, everything's good with what he's doing. It actually kind of makes him more interesting. But over time, that's just going to ruin his life. Or make him super cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It is weird to think that nothing that happens in this first act matters because of the ending of Back to the Future Part 3. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's all I'm about gonna the go journey. Ahead. 
I'm going to go ahead and blame Marty McFly for us not getting that cool-ass future. Like, he may have saved himself, but he really screwed things up for planet Earth. No, they, We're missing they, out on, like, 15 Jaws sequels. <laughs> there is a canon reason as to why there's no flying cars and shit in the actual year 2015. It's on the bonus disc on the Blu-ray. It's called Doc Brown Saves the World. Delightful. Also, can I just say, this is the most optimistic portrayal of future police I've ever seen. Like, I wish the police were this nice. <laughs> just happy civil servants with no weapons. Both women, interestingly. And their hats are so friendly. <laughs> I was very confused. Personal story. Uh, last night, I was playing video games getting drunk, and I got a phone call from an unlisted number. I answered, and I hear... Open the door. This is the police. And I go, uh, the who? And they repeat, this is the police. Can you please open the door for us? At which point, I was drunk enough to luckily not just run to the door and be like, they're outside my apartment. <laughs> and I, I was like, what door are you at? And the north entrance, of course. So I go down there, and it turns out someone had apparently forgot their keys and the cops had dropped them off at the apartment and they couldn't get inside. So <laughs> the cops just... <laughs> randomly called one of the tenants to, to open the door for them. Ugh. Michael J. Fox. <laughs> God, that comedy head tilt. Yeah. See, this is this is what I mean about the comedy, I think. Like, everyone has to play extreme old age. They're trying ah, to monster. Around, <clears throat> they're trying to work around Crispin Glover. Michael J. Fox is doing this thing. It's It's a lot. I don't know what you're talking about. Female Michael J. Fox can fucking get it. <laughs> Are you saying it's not an improvement? The head bobs throw me off. So, as long as we got not Crispin Glover here being strung up by his feet. What a weird thing. So, I think this is part of my issue with the plotting of the Back to the Future franchise. In one, it's a lot of it's about George. He's obviously not the main character, but his interaction with his son is the driving plot of the movie. Then in two, they realize we're not getting Crispin Glover back. So we, we can't really have his relationship be important to the movie because we, we basically need to write him off. Which is, you know, why is a tombstone in alternate 85? And I think that hurts because now we've got, you know, Marty's still running around trying to do stuff but his dad isn't that driving force anymore. He can still interact with his mom but that theme of love is, is kind of been scrubbed out which is a big driving part of parts one and three, which I think work much better. I think they would have been so much better off if they had just recast Crispin Glover and written George McFly as a, an integral part of the story. It would have given them a lot more avenues to really make something thematically sound. They had the excuse with the time jump. <laughs> with the multiple time jumps at that. Yeah. Also, an interesting little side bit about uh, the Crispin Glover makeup uh, so there, there's, you know, the back and forth between Glover and Gale about the reasons why Glover didn't come back. Glover claims that he wasn't being paid enough and he wanted to be paid more like one of the side characters. He was getting half of what they were getting. Gale claims that he asked for as much money as Michael J. Fox. So the truth is out there somewhere. And script most approval. Down to money. He didn't care for some of the stuff in the script either. He's admitted that when he read that his character was going to be strung upside down, 
he felt like it was some sort of punishment for his actions on the first movie. Which it was. <laughs> so, they they had some bad blood there. Although, eventually, Glover came back and worked with Zemeckis on Beowulf. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. There, I, mean, it, I believe... I think it's um, more bad blood between Glover and uh, probably, probably Gale than Zemeckis. Yeah, I, b- I believe uh, Glover also almost came around at the very last minute and decided to do it, but then he had, like, new... he did, He's, like, switch agencies or something, and the new agents were like, no, you were right the first time. You should ask for a ridiculous amount of money. You're oh. Crispin Glover. <laughs> if, if what he's saying was true, and he's only getting half of what Leah Thompson was, I... It makes sense those characters theoretically would have gotten the same amount of screen time been written fully into the story. He probably should have been paid appropriately to that. If he's asking for as much money as Biff, uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense because Tom Wilson essentially owns this movie. He's all over it. So, I don't know. Who knows? They, they always make a point. point. They always make a point of saying, no, he asked for things Michael J. Fox did not ask for. Yeah, but... Yeah, I, I I wonder how much of that is true and how much of it's overblown. We only get one side of the story, which makes well, me scratch my head. Even Glover kind of admits that he kind of wanted script approval, which would be fucking ridiculous to ask for. Yeah. And you do not want to give Crispin Glover script approval. I love Crispin <laughs> Glover. Do not give him script approval. Can I, can I rap in this one? <laughs> Maybe that would have made Back to the Future 2 a hit, a bigger hit. Anyways, anyways, the actual interesting fact I was leading up to before I went on five sidebars, uh, we had Jeffrey Weissman replace Glover wearing facial prosthetics that were molded off of Glover from the first film. So Glover was able to sue Universal uh, Studios over this, and eventually Screen Actor Guild rules had to be changed so that studios couldn't just make an application of your face and then fire you from the next movie in the series. Probably for the best. Yeah. yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Ah, fuck it, we'll just glue your face onto somebody else. Now, or imagine in current away... day, someone would just you know, CGI your face onto somebody else. Now, before we get away from it, I just want to talk about this sequence. Because this nutty professor shot originally went on for like 15 seconds. Technically, it's extremely impressive. They braved an earthquake for this. It took them days and days of shooting to get this composite shot right. And the other two Michael J. Foxes are wearing shit on their face, so it just looks like they have stand-ins there. Yeah, it's kind of a shame, this but they... This maddens me to Michael. <laughs> <laughs> that could have been such an amazing movie moment. Why are they wearing visors? I know. But uh, this movie is... Did uh, invent the Vista Glide. Uh, it's, it's Flea, I'm sorry, he's terrifying. <laughs> uh, flea. Old man Flea. I'm still fascinated by the fact that that's not stunt casting. Flea just read for the part. Yeah, Flea pops up in weird places. Like, just, there he's a baby driver, because why not? You never know where to expect Flea. Flea's always had just a normal, legitimate acting job, because uh, acting career, because he just enjoyed acting. Though it's funny, he does not like any of the Back to the Future films. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't wiggity-whack enough. So unrelated to this, I just have to point out uh, one of Mike and I's favorite things that exists. Flea was in an unreleased Youngblood animated film. Oh, Gen 13. Oh, yeah, Gen 13. I I, I got my image stupids mixed up. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've been fired from the commentary. Beautifully animated <laughs> Gen 13 movie 
with like Mark Hamill and shit that was released only in Germany. Loris Leachman is in that movie. It's awesome. Try to track it down. It is a Disney release. Yep. God damn it, Joe Japan. <laughs> I have to say, it was very uh, validating to look this scene up online and realize, no, I haven't just been missing something my entire life. It's never said what the hell is going on here. Just he was not supposed to use his card for something. Whatever it was, it's bad. So bad he got multifaxes. God knows if needles is involved, it's no good. So, I don't know where else to fit this in, so I'm just going to talk about it now. But I want to bring up what might be my favorite part about Back to the Future. And it's none of the movies. It's not the cartoon. It's Back to the Future, the ride. <laughs> I respect it. Uh, it's, it's a real shame because you actually have to be a time traveler now if you want to fully appreciate this thing. Between 1991 and 2007, you could hop in a DeLorean and experience time travel at Universal Studios. It was the coolest ride there. Uh, basically, what it was, if, if you weren't lucky enough to get to Universal during that time period, was they had fake DeLorean cars that could hold you know, a ton of extra people. You'd sit in the car. There was a 70-foot Omnimax dome screen in front of you. And the car was mounted to three pistons that could push up, down, drop, tilt, whatever. So you'd sit in the car. There was a giant projected screen in front of you. And the car would move around, making it feel like you were actually being thrown through space and time. To complete this uh, illusion, they went out and they filmed like a, a five-minute mini-movie where you chase Biff, who is also in a time-traveling DeLorean, through time. You, you go through 2015, uh, you go back in time through a volcano, you get eaten by a T-Rex before you ultimately stop Biff and return to the present time. And they get like... The original actor's back, so that's really cool. It feels like it's kind of authentic, even though it's a cheesy theme park story. Tom Wilson uh, called me a butthead. Yeah, <laughs> they had like a seven-foot-tall T-Rex puppet, I think, they, they used. Uh, it, it looked pretty cool, actually, especially projected on that size, that giant screen. And the car moving around, even though it only moved like maybe two to three feet in any direction, paired up with the screen, it felt like you were actually falling when the car tilted forward. It was amazing. It was the safest thing in the world, and it still felt like you were about to die, like you were really being swallowed by a T-Rex. My, my mom and sister almost threw up. They couldn't handle it. My dad and I thought it was the coolest shit in the world. And I'm very, very sad to say that they replaced it with The Simpsons Ride, which I, I think is a similar concept, but, you know, Simpsons-themed. Huh. <sighs> Just thinking about it makes me very sad. But if you want to get an idea what this was like, they actually have like a recreation of the entire ride on YouTube. So you can sit down and watch the video and you can kind of pretend, maybe just rock your chair back and forth or something. <laughs> and uh, there's a special feature on the Blu-ray for part three, I think, that actually goes through the creation of the ride. So you can you can get an idea of the history of it. But boy, let me tell you, you missed out by not being able to ride that thing. It was It was super cool. I'm curious, does that mean that... For you, Back to the Future is a ride first, 
and everything else second? Like, is this trilogy like your version of Pirates of the Caribbean? <laughs> a little bit. Like, I enjoy the movies. But when I think of Back to the Future, my first thought is always sitting in that plastic DeLorean chair with my head bouncing frantically against the back seat because it rumbled so much. And just, you know, the car is swerving back and left and right as it tried to avoid other hover cars. That experience was amazing. It, it was so fun. And that's something that's very unique about uh, older like pop culture touchstones. Like things today don't seem to envelop kids' childhoods quite like these properties did to us when we were kids. Like there's not that sense that, oh, this is a movie and it's your favorite cartoon and it's your <laughs> breakfast cereal and it's your lunchbox. And some of that, I guess, is good because they're not cold-heartedly trying to pl- to plow as much stuff on kids as they did in the 80s, but I don't know. It, it's weird to well, be even, even nostalgic the for brand recognition, re- brand integration, but it, it does sting a little bit. But we'll just think, uh, Godzilla, even though it wasn't a huge commercial success, got an animated series in the 90s. There was Men in Black, which, yeah, critically, financially very successful, but also had a long-running TV show, or a cartoon okay. show. Evolution yeah. got a cartoon. <laughs> what? I do not remember that at all. That's amazing. Yep. And it was obviously it kind of... And people remembered it. And it was oddly kind of interesting. <laughs> also, I, I hello, the most up. tonally off scene in this entire franchise. <laughs> Just a black father terrified that people from the bank are trying to rape his daughter to convince him to leave so he, he can sell his home to Biff. Goddamn, Scooby-Doo got dark. I just remember Back to the Future was like, you know... Kids movie. <laughs> <laughs> like you get kind of used to it, then you remember like, oh no, alternate eighty five. They took very seriously yeah, and accidentally uh, told us what um, <laughs> twenty nineteen in America is going to be. And then you do to get cartoony shit like that. That's just a funny joke. <laughs> See, I like how they were so off with future 2015, but accidentally predicted it in another act. <laughs> that is very odd. They didn't try in 2015, but their alternate 1984 is a pretty good replica of what we got going in some places. Can, can I say, I just love that not only does this fuck up Hill Valley, Biff getting what Biff wants destroys the world. Biff can never be happy, I think, is what the universe is trying to tell us. Doesn't that sound familiar to you in some way? <laughs> I can't put my finger on it. I don't know if it's worth mentioning. Yeah, those always things me. that happen when rich white men win. I've noticed that this entire series takes place in October. What does nobody fucking decorate for Halloween this goddamn godforsaken town? It's That's California. Does California do Halloween as, as much as places where they get real fall? I've seen shots from Halloween 3 Season of the Witch where clearly there are trick-or-treaters. <laughs> That's the only photographic evidence. <laughs> also, we would be remiss if we did not talk about one of my favorite things <laughs> in movie history. Apocalypse Strickland. Strickland! <laughs> like, this like, is amazing. Could you imagine an alternate version, a quite frankly, better version of Back to the Future 2, 
where they just do it Bill and Ted style with Marty picking up people from different timelines. And he just <laughs> hangs out with Apocalypse Strickland from the third act. Eat lead, slacker. That's, that's something that will forever baffle me about Zemeckis and Gale's complete and utter aversion to having Jennifer really be a part of this movie. Because honestly, I think that would have added a lot, especially with oh, yeah. Marty and Jennifer going back to the 50s in the third act, because then you're seeing the movie fresh from the eyes of a character who wasn't there. It's always confused me why they just saw no value in that. In yeah. a movie that was kind of desperately needing more through lines to connect uh, the disparate acts. Yeah. I, and, and on top of that, if you look at the first movie... It's all about the romance of George and Lorraine. Like, those two getting together saves the universe, essentially. At least for Marty. And then for part three, it's all about Doc falling in love. So part two, in my mind, the logical extension would be, hey, Marty and his girlfriend just went to the future to find out what their lives are like. We could carry that through. That's a romance. We could tell them deciding their fates, their future, their destiny. And so the movie's like, ah, she goes into a coma and then gets arrested and then we, we throw her away. I it's just a big missed opportunity in my mind. I think it's uh, to me it's a little half and half. Like I think it's always going to be a shame Jennifer was benched because of the storytelling opportunities. Um, but when you don't want to go in in certain directions and and want to focus on different um, areas, I can understand like you know more of characters of ju- of just you know Marty's perspective. Also, hey, original Mad Dog. Um, <laughs> I can see, I can understand at least their point in having a character who was not a character in the first film. He's only in like two scenes. And a character who is also one movie behind. You really have to alter a large portion of structure around Jennifer to make sure, at least to where they would be happy uh, as the kind of writers Zemeckis and Gale are to have her feel like a true character and have to catch her up on everything else without slowing things down and making sure Jennifer is not um, does not feel um like she's weighing the audience down and instead of adding. At that point, you have to restructure the movie both two and three at that point. Uh, to such a degree, it's probably a lot of extra hoop jumping that they did not want to do unless they did want to tell, you know, a story about Marty and Jennifer, which they was, is a missed opportunity in some, in some respects. Um, but I also, you know, understand where they, maybe didn't want to go that way because they didn't feel like there was much of a story to tell between Jennifer and Marty at that point. On the other side, people never get tired of companions and Doctor Who saying, it's bigger on the inside. (laughs) (laughs) So I I feel like you could could throw in a companion character and just be like, ah, they're going to learn as they go and just roll with it. This DeLorean goes 88 miles per hour. Ah, they said the line! Technically, that is just as wondrous and impossible as the inside of the TARDIS. True. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I think that's one of those things where the sequels probably would have benefited from having just a little bit more time to cook. 
and for the love of God, not shooting them both simultaneously, <laughs> which I think Zemeckis kind of well, definitely regrets. He's very honest about the fact that of the three, two is the one that he had the least amount of time to work on, and the one he feels doesn't quite come together. Also, uh, one one last thing here about the replacement of uh, Jennifer. Since we don't have the Jennifer relationship to focus on, and we don't have George uh, in this story either, we get the darkness of the third movie focusing on the really horrible, toxic, abusive relationship between Biff and Lorraine. Which really, I mean, the first movie is pretty fun, but had darkness. This one, I, I think, flips the formula and makes it more dark than fun at points. Well, I think, uh, I think it's kind of necessary to have in a movie that's at times like this whimsical and uh, and not terribly connected to stakes or character arcs. Like, I think it it comes as close as you can come to saving the movie to have the stakes for the third act made this viscerally real. Like, I kind of like how just this portion of the movie is just dead serious for the most part. Yeah. Like, if this were... I'm sorry? No, go on. I was going to say, if this were, I feel, were less stark and more playful, like the first and third acts, I don't think this movie would be watchable. Like, Back to the Future Part 2 is a very flawed movie, but it's still a movie that you can come away feeling, you know, having good feelings towards, having some affection and forgiving its structural faults. I don't think you'd have any of that if you changed this. Yeah, this is um, the weight of all of this, you know, the what's happening to Lorraine, the, the murder of George McFly. Um, it's always such a great anchor for uh, the rest of the film, and it's such a whiplash making... You know, the, it doesn't work, the first act, but, you know, making the future stuff so colorful, such a cartoon, and then smacking you in the face with this. Um, to me, that's an interesting, um, use of time travel, is being able to make this dark timeline. Like, this is much more of, like, this, all three Back to the Future movies are science fiction. This is the only sci-fi movie of the bunch, I feel. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't really get that much credit. It's like, how often did you see time travel doppelgangers as a sci-fi trope in, like, mainstream fiction before Back to the Future 2? Yeah. Like, it's all old hat now, but this was about the closest to hard sci-fi as your average moviegoer was going to encounter in the 80s. That turn. Marty, <laughs> Meanwhile, on the set of Dracula. <laughs> Marty, it's okay. You own a time machine. You can always go visit him in the past. Also, probably fix the past. <laughs> yeah, Marty must just be Rick Sanchez at this point. Ah, nothing matters. I can just hop into my time machine and bring him back to life. <laughs> well, you, you have that issue, time travel movies. So you have to invent some sort of obstacle to just say, well, no, you can't go in the past an unlimited amount of times to keep fixing things, that would that would be a cheat. And it's not dramatically exciting. That's why Doc Brown must always be in the process of destroying the time machine forever. Yeah. 
I was like, going back to uh, the Biff stuff a bit, I have always so appreciated the fact that not only did they update Biff's crew to be the Elvis entourage, (sighs) each of those actors picked an Elvis dude to imitate and just changed their performances accordingly. (laughs) <laughs> particularly Apocalypse 3D, who is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> and Zane just kind of doing uh, a performance from one scene of, that he would later use in Demon Knight. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Like, he just brings back Demon the Knight voice in Demon Knight. Demon Knight is one big, the easy way. <laughs> <laughs> the easy way. God, the sadness of his slightly more disheveled shit. <laughs> There's some boards on the window now. All the candles. Because Doc is just determined to burn shit down. <laughs> it's funny how everyone always acts like um, back to the, including honestly me for many, many, many years. Always acts like Back to the Future's uh, time travel science is stupid and makes no sense. I, and un, unless you're an actual physicist who finds the Back to the Future movies to be the most accurate portrayal of what time travel would actually be, yeah. Like, oh, Zemeckis and Gale did research weirdly. It, like going back again to like science fiction tropes established by this franchise, like. How often did you see it acknowledged in in time travel stories that the future would change and branch off? I mean, most science fiction stories either treat the past like it's just some other place, like it's Narnia or something, or they use bootstrap logic where whatever you change in the past always existed. This is the only one that really plays with the whole butterfly effect of it all. Yeah, the the time machine, um, which is where Zemeckis and Gale got a lot of their inspiration, um, and a lot of their ideas of how time travel works, uh, from. It's why the um, the um, dates on the DeLorean are all three different colors. It's just a reference to the uh, the actual device in uh, in the time machine. Um, different colors. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I don't like to bring color- up colors around you, but you know, it's it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. I just, just say from the, se- the future sequences in color would have been nice. I know. It's just it's all just a series of oranges. <laughs> Why is everything sepia? It's the future. <laughs> what an I don't odd know, Cody, noir be this kind is. Of awesome? <laughs> wouldn't it be great if you saw everything old timey? What a, what a blessing that would be. Well, it, it wouldn't matter if you didn't know what new time he looked like. You got to have that frame of reference. And you could just play jazz with like everything you watched. <laughs> I mean, I could do that now. But you should. <laughs> honestly, nothing stopping me from just doing that, and living my life that way. Just fuck up your eyes so the world has scratches. <laughs> Cody, can you please do this? I don't want to mess with my peepers. Okay, don't scratch your eyes. Can you just play jazz for me personally? I'll, I'll consider Constantly. it a personal favor. <laughs> what an odd favor. Will you please play jazz always for me? <laughs> sounds like a dying request. Like we're on the dance floor and you're just, just clutching at my arms. Cody, will you always play jazz for me? 
and remember <laughs> me on the high hats. Can you scat for me just one last time for the code step? Oh, grief. And the ending of Philadelphia got sadder. <laughs> Serious question. Since they can go into the past and fix things, and they've already created this horrible alternate universe that these people have to live in, couldn't they make the future better for these people by just murdering Biff and then going to the past to fix time? No, it's a Samurai Jack logic. They have to murder everyone in this universe by changing the past. Technically, Marty's committed genocide on a universal scale. Good. True. Although it would be hilarious where Jet Li is going to show up and uh, become the one soon, though. <laughs> God, it He's just looks like going Mar- through the universe killing Biffs. <laughs> <laughs> Until a bunch of Biffs are just crawling up a giant pyramid to fight Jet Li. Um, it always looks like Marty's about to pee in the hot tub here. You think that, too? It's shot very much like that. Also, hey, President Trump. Make America biff again. All I can ever think of now whenever I look at this office is Kelly Sudaconic saying, My favorite color is leopard print. (laughs) (laughs) So funny enough, you bring up Trump. That's exactly where they got that portrait from. The whole office is super tacky. This is super Trump. Oh, yeah. This is all just a parody of Trump in, you know, 89. There's a fucking dollar sign paperweight. The amount of Trump jokes that are no longer jokes anymore is kind of startling. Yeah. Though we do get Chris Evans calling Trump a biff because of this, so. (laughs) That's actually hilarious. (laughs) I see what you did. I, get I do admit, I appreciate Biff's choice in villain chairs. Oh, it's spectacular. Fucking Ming the Merciless Throne he's got there. I will say, if I ever become overlord of Hill Valley, I would also wear a jacket like that all the time. <laughs> Have you guys seen the fan theory that Marty is constantly dying in these films and Doc is just fucking with the time stream over and over? I don't really know if that counts as a fan theory. I think that's just an improvement, honestly. <laughs> like, uh, at the end of the scene when Marty uh, falls off the building and Doc is right there to save him, Doc kind of brushes aside, like, what a coincidence, and then flies away. <laughs> like, no, he died like 40 times falling off that building before Doc got it right. I like how everyone wants Back to the Future to be more like Rick and Morty. <laughs> uh, could you imagine Marty's Mindbenders? Oh god, I put my mom in the butt. There is one version of this movie where that happened. We all know it. And the duck was there. A talking goddamn fucking duck. Also, in all timelines, Biff is obsessed with getting his name on matchbooks. (laughs) That's all he wants. That's that's the one thing his character needs. Yeah. I love his little betrayal gun. (laughs) Why did you own that murder weapon? (laughs) 
Uh, just in that, case odd job is ever under his employ. That fucking murder frisbee there, just to hold matchbooks. <laughs> God, it's so weird to compare this to the original and just think of how many stunts had to be done for this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, how the much Marty has movie. to run around in this inexplicably action-heavy Back to the Future movie. Yeah, Back to the Future 1, if you think about it, not really that heavy on effects. A little bit with the car and some of the stuff with, like, Marty fading out of existence. But, you know, it's it's mostly a comedy. This one, there's effects all over the place. And there's, now there's early action, CGI. There's stunts. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of extra stuff that happens here. And even the third one, it goes back in time to the Old West, so it actually kind of settles down and has less over-the-top kind of, like, special effects stuff happening. It's it's a lot of practical things, you know, like getting the train in. But that's weird to me that the middle one's the one that went whole hog for, you know, the big budget movies these always were. It's the most action-packed intermission in film franchise history. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's a great uh, moment. Uh, I was, like, captured in some uh, behind-the-scenes footage of... of Michael J. Fox just looking around, like, agog in the middle of shooting, uh, I think it might even be this sequence, where he just kind of turns to the camera and says, yeah, I've been acting for years. I never thought I would be doing all of this. Like, me, (laughs) the dude from Family Ties. (laughs) Dude from those Pepsi commercials. Teen Wolf. Tank Venture rises up. (laughs) The DeLorean doors finally came in handy! Let's do some cocaine. Let's throw him off the building. Now, it really shows you just how seriously movie studios used to take sets that... No, it's just actually the DeLorean rising up from the ground. (laughs) I know, we we just built a big-ass set with enough room to lift a car up slowly. You know, the Christopher Nolan method. I miss sets. So it's really impressive to me, even on Blu-ray, that all the effects in this movie really hold up. Everything but the old people makeup. Yeah. But even I mean, that's even... not really a, uh, an HD thing, it's just for whatever reason... The old makeup, old people makeup in this movie is not very good. Except for what's on Wilson. But, uh, you know, think of old person makeup now. I was watching Prometheus early today, and boy, Peter Whalen looks funky. It never looks good. Very rarely. Yeah. Depends on how subtle it is, but. It's pretty much just Benjamin Button. That's it. Yeah. Where you gotta age a person up like 50 years. They have a real hard time doing that. I think part of it is the acting. A lot of people will go very over the top. Like they'll they'll hold their arms up and they'll shake a whole lot, and yeah. they they put a little too much gusto on being old. That's why they yeah, just did Peggy see... Carter as CGI. Yeah, people don't seem to realize you don't really change in personality or mannerisms that much whenever you get old. I mean, does Jack Nicholson today act that much differently than seventies Jack Nicholson? Well, I don't know him personally, so it's hard to say. Or Christopher Lloyd here. He's still just as quiet and reserved today. <laughs> New plan. Murder Biff. 
can't do anything with the almanac if he's dead. Did it blow anybody else's mind to find out that this stretch of road, the stretch of road on the edge of forever, apparently, is just a backlot with some forced forced perspective shit to make it look like a long road? (laughs) I always just assume this is like an on-location shot. You would think, yeah, it was because... Yeah, I mean, it, it um, shots of it were um, an actual location in the first film, so I always thought they just went back there. I didn't know they switched to a, to a fucking back lot. Now so you can kind of tell, like but it's still really impressive. That was like the most impressive matte painting ever. I do like that Doc has a whole bundle full of different money from different times. Oh, I thought that was the most badass thing as a kid. Oh, hey, remember those racist jockey statues? My granddad's house was full of them. Uh, my parents had one in our, our front yard for a long time. My sister used to, like, run out each morning before school, kiss him, and then get on the bus. Before my parents were like, yeah, this is a bad look. Maybe we should get rid of this thing. <laughs> But those were things I remember from my childhood, those stupid fucking jockey statues planted up in yards all over the place until, like, roughly the year 2000 when people went, mm, we don't need these, and I don't know where they all went. I don't know what happens to racist jockey statues when they're retired. Is there just, like, a landfill of, like, black jockey statues? Uh, there were the cigar store Indians are. An E.T. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they bury the E.T. cartridges on top of. <laughs> I love Undercover Marty so much. <laughs> Undercover Calvin Klein. This, the, the stealth missions in this movie drive me absolutely bananas. <laughs> so, hey, return of Fleischer. All right, more throwing numbers at the internet. So, according to usinflationcalculator.com, if you spent $300 in 1955, that'd be the equivalent of spending $2,817.76 in 2019, a cumulative inflation rate of 839.2%. So I can see why Biff is pissed off. Uh, Also, Google claims the average cost of a new car in the 50s was right around $2,200, depending on you know, the car you got. That's a hell of a, a cleanup. Is it me or My is Marty God, look the really... The of the dress. <laughs> is it me or is Marty look really comfortable in that back seat? It's well, the, He's it's got a cozy blanket. blanket. I mean, it's October. He's wearing a nice jacket. It's California, so he might be a little warm. And I like sleeping in hats. Uh, that's a weird thing. As a kid, I was very obsessed with napping in the backseat of a convertible, and I'm pretty sure it just comes from this movie. <laughs> also, hey, ancillary best friend character. <laughs> I really don't have lines. I just love how all the actors they couldn't give back. With that one, they're like, no, we have to draw the line somewhere. We have to sell the transition. She can't have more than one friend. 
it is little touches like that that really make the third act of this movie work. Like, you never question that. No, they're totally back to 1955. We're just in the first movie now. Yeah. Especially as a kid, that was like the biggest magic trick in the world. Oh, yeah, it's like, oh, this is what Biff was up to whenever we weren't seeing him. <laughs> Making odd proclamations in the town square. Horrifying odd proclamations, and also wearing fantastic button-ups. Honestly, that shirt's fucking delightful. I want that shirt so badly. It's dope. I, so that guy. That, uh, the cuffed jeans, that shirt, dude looks cool. It's too bad he's a butthead. Yeah, that is how arch a bully Biff Tannen is. The man through time travel called himself a butthead. (laughs) God, the special effects bonanza we're about to witness in this car. I was thinking about that. It's it's interesting to see the different types of directors out there. A lot of people will say there's technical directors and there's actor directors. The former being really interested in all the things you can do with film and all the ways you can set up shots and all this. The other half being more concerned about performance. And obviously you have people that meet in the middle. But Zemeckis has really struck me as a guy who's super, super into what can I get away with this time. I mean, just all the CGI films that he did, the amount of special effects trickery to make these scenes play off with multiple copies of the same actor. Smekis just seems like a dude who's in love with the idea of pushing boundaries. Oh, yeah. I, in preparation to doing these commentaries, I... Finally par- watched The Walk. No one has seen The Walk. It's true. I car evening to rewatch Zemeckis's Tales from the Crypt episodes, All Through the House, uh, You Murderer, and Yellow. And it's fascinating because through those three episodes, you can see all of Zemeckis's career reflected back in them. Like uh, All Through the House, the original Tales from the Crypt pilot, is pretty much just what the tone of Tales from the Crypt was, that Zemeckis tone of whimsy with a touch of darkness. And yes, I'm referring to the evil, axe-murdering Santa Claus. It's just a touch of darkness. Yeah, just a touch. I think it's set up in in Tales from the Crypt. You always get the kind of cold-blooded dark ending. Tales from the Crypt was not there to be sentimental. Yeah. And then you get Yellow, which is just a beautiful Kirk Douglas character story for 30 minutes. Like, there's not a single joke in it. This is, like, prestige actor-director Zemeckis. And then you get to You Murderer, which is Zemeckis going, I am going to use mad science to make Humphrey Bogart the star of a Tales from the Crypt episode. (laughs) Boy. Yeah, I remember that now. That was a hell of a thing. Right, that episode is delightful. He gets shot by John Lithgow. It's amazing. <laughs> and yeah, it's you could see both sides of Zemeckis. Like Zemeckis does not get enough credit for being a director who contains multitudes. I mean, how the hell do you direct used cars and Forrest Gump and the most book accurate adaptation of A Christmas Carol starring Jim Carrey in CGI? 
Be sure to put on your 3D glasses, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't look at their dead doll eyes. Like, Zemeckis is a mad scientist. And these days, uh, his stuff kind of hits the reject pile more often than not, which is very unfortunate. But, God, you cannot blame the guy for being adventurous. I think he's definitely earned just fiddling around with technology in his later years as a director. Yeah, I'm glad to see him getting back to live-action stuff, though, after being in the 3D movie realm for so long, which he did a lot. I mean, it's not like he just he did, did kid kids' movies or something, you know. He did a wide spectrum of, of things. But like Cody said he gave us Beowulf, which is not a great movie, but go back and rewatch it. Like, it's a fun 90 minutes. It's yeah, well, the director's cut is pretty good. Like, I don't care for the theatrical cut, even though I was very excited for it, but director's cut, pretty fucking solid, honestly. I definitely need to watch that. I still never got around to. So in the movies here, we've, we've established that the Sports Almanac contains all the scores until, like, the year 2000 for every sporting event. Which yet we all recognize the fact that that book is way too goddamn thin for that, but whatever. As <laughs> they bring up in the commentary. But we've also established that events it can be done to change the outcome of the future. Like, I mean, that's that's the whole thing with Marty in the photograph in the first movie, or the the newspaper headlines, or all that different stuff. You can little effects travel down the timeline and change all the outcomes. Theoretically, like they could be doing bad scores in that almanac from all the shit they're pulling right now. But more interesting in my mind, imagine the movie where Marty just had to sabotage a football game so this <laughs> bet went south. And he got his knees broke by the mob for not being able to pay for his giant football bet. Oh, it, it just becomes Teen Wolf like he has to play. <laughs> oh, That's no, how I'm they recreate the ending of the first movie. Could you imagine that? Like Marty comes into the NFL and he has to pretend to be like a current day football player. Like, I'm Brett Favre. <laughs> And he has to lead his shitty replacements team to a uh, spectacular win so Biff's bet goes south and he loses faith in the almanac. Also, I really fucking hate, not this part with Doc, the fact that Marty's in a car two inches away from from Biff talking on a radio. It drives me nuts. I can't suspend that much disbelief. I just, come Biff on, is he's too right dumb there. to hear. If it's too dumb to hear or like see anything in his rearview mirror, I mean, it would be hilarious know. if he just chucked the fucking walkie-talkie at the back of his head. He wrapped his car around a goddamn tree. <laughs> it always makes me laugh how just ah, fuck it. He's just talking on a goddamn. Who cares? No, oh, have you ever been in a convertible? So it's very loud. Across town. Especially when you're in the tunnel that goes to Toontown, so <laughs> it's even louder. God, if only Apocalypse uh, Hilldale had fucking insane supervillain Doc Brown. See him go full uh, Judge Doom. I, I just had a thought here. Zemeckis's trailblazing in multi-actor screen portrayals really just allowed us to get the Nutty Professor series. If it wasn't for Zemeckis' work, Eddie Murphy would have been like, oh, what am I going to do? I want to play all the characters, but technology won't let me. I can only play so many different races. I just think that technology is what culminated finally in Jack and Jill. Now I'm angry. The world was better for it, I say. <laughs>
As going back to the way uh, uh, the unique way time travel works in this movie, I always love the weird fan theories that oh no, if you go back to the first movie, you can totally see Doc Brown on his bicycle in the background, and you can see this and this because they were setting it up back then. Despite the fact that that's not how time travel is established as working this <laughs> multiple, multiple times. To the point where that's the premise of two and three. That time travel does not work that way. It is funny how the coincidences of certain things line up in the first movie for this. Like, there's a dude wearing that hat on a bicycle behind Doc at one point in the first movie. It's just a coincidence that, you know, that lined up with two. Um, You know, there's people walking around the background of one that kind of look like Marty in his uh, undercover outfit, you know, lurking around. It's purely coincidental, but it's just, it's, it's funny how it's like the cosmos made a trilogy happen. The universe needed Back to the Future to exist. That's, I love the fucking cowboy shot of Michael J. Fox there. Fucking <laughs> man on a mission. So, do you think it was just the 50s that they were so into dances that they had to be big extravagant deals? Or was my school just really lame? Because all of my dances were pretty much like there was one poster with like hand lettering tacked up to a wall and like a rented DJ. This is uh, this is a white school from the 50s. <laughs> they have to keep those kids away from cocaine and abortions. Now I'm just mixing the two in my head. Cocaine abortion seems like a bad prospect. I mean... It's weird. <laughs> I don't think we need to continue that thought. <laughs> Can I just say... Moving on. Right, it's weird to think Biff is looking at porn. Biff is rock hard right now. He is specifically doing like one of my favorite tropes. The guy... Over the top, enjoying a porn magazine. Oh, <laughs> also, man, there's a lot, a lot of cat and mouse stuff in the 55 section. I think it's the strongest part of the movie, but it still drives me a little bananas that it's just see Marty reach for the almanac, but Biff moves it. Then see Marty reach for the almanac, but Biff turns around, but doesn't see Marty. See Marty reach for the almanac, but Strickland keeps fucking around. It's, it's, it, argh, I get it. They want the almanac, but fuck, it's like the same sequence four times. It is fascinating to see the character conflict motivated third act of the original recontextualized as a cat and mouse action beat. It, it would. I know they couldn't do this because of uh, Glover's likeness, but wouldn't it have been hilarious if they kept in the deleted scene from the first movie of George getting trapped in a phone booth? Just to make <laughs> it extra tense. Oh, God. And on the subject of monster George McFly, I think we talked about him a little bit earlier. Jeffrey Wiseman, the actor who was pulled to replace Crispin Glover. Yeah, that guy 
gave an interview a couple of years ago that I found in my research that is one of the saddest documents I've ever seen. <laughs> did you guys see this? No, I did not. Yeah, he goes into the entire story of how he was pulled for this and what happened and how it kind of ruined his life. Yeah, he was just a dude who I believe was playing uh oh, he's playing Charlie Chaplin at Universal Studios. Like this was a dude whose thing was imitating celebrities professionally and got a call from one of his friends who said I put in a good word for you for a part for Universal. Uh, just come to this location. I'm not legally allowed to tell you what the part is, but you're going to want it. He goes down there, and they just immediately start putting makeup on him and taking photographs. And this goes on for a while, and as far as Wiseman knows, he's just supposed to be playing George in photographs. And maybe as a stand-in on set, it's not until he's fucking on set that he realizes, no, I'm a scab who's being paid <laughs> to replace an actor they wouldn't pay. What have I done? And he was fucking miserable on set. He felt that everyone hated him. When Michael J. Fox walked on set for the first time and saw him, he just frowned and said, Chrisman's not going to like this, and I walked away. <laughs> uh, Leah Thompson, it apparently took her years to remember his name, and anytime she'd introduce him on set, she'd just point to him and say, this is the guy who's replacing Crispin. <laughs> Ooh. Apparently, Ouch. Billy Zane informed him that Leah Thompson had an enormous crush on Crispin Glover, and was deeply resentful of having to kiss him in the future scenes. <laughs> oh. And to make things even worse, on one of his first set uh, days on set, Steven Spielberg visited, took one look at him and said, Oh, congratulations, Crispin. Looks like you got your million after all, and walked away. What uh, Spielberg didn't know is they were paying him uh, a couple of thousand a week. I think he, uh, I'm looking at now, he calculated a total. He says he was saving that studio $975,000 for a role he didn't audition for and did not know the details of until it was too late. And to make matters worse, uh, Wiseman knew Crispin Glover. They had acted together before and were acquaintances. So, during shooting, Crispin called him up and just unloaded onto him. Like, let me pull this up, because I want the exact quote. Uh, when Crispin decided he wanted to sue Universal, the cast and the production team, he contacted me and was very whiny about how badly they treated him on the first film. The producers belittled him and made him cry in front of extras, cut his hair without his approval, and he whined about how much he had been done wrong because they were going to pay him twice scale for the use of the clips from the first film. Uh, Glover then used that conversation in his case against Universal, 
which caused Universal to blacklist him. And Crispin Glover has never spoken to him since. So because of being George McFly, he never worked for Universal again and had a very hard time getting work afterwards. Because he was unwittingly part of a lawsuit. <laughs> it's worse because that version of George McFly isn't even funny. What a waste. Also, what? to backtrack here, uh, so, fun fact, when Marty goes up and says, I know CPR, and everyone goes, what? We all go, oh, they don't have the term CPR back in the 50s, which is true, in a sense. Uh, forms of CPR have been around for hundreds of years, like as far back as the early 17th century. There were jujitsu and judo books that have described pretty similar techniques to CPR. Uh, but it didn't catch on in the worldwide health community until the 70s, which explains why nobody in the 50s knows what the fuck Marty's saying. Uh, author Peter Safar wrote a book, uh, the book of uh, the ABCs of resuscitation in 1957, but CPR wasn't really promoted as something the public needed to know about until the 70s. Also, the Boy Scouts had their own form of CPR uh, called the Holger-Nielsen Technique that they had published in their scout manuals in 1911. But in that crazy version, uh, a person was laid face down with their head turned to the side and upward pressure was applied to the patient's elbows, raising the upper body while pressure was applied to the back to force air into the lungs. Kind of like treating a person like a fucking accordion, I guess. I mean, it's, it's weird. They're trying to pump the body to get the air in and out. You can go watch videos of it online. It looks very silly and complicated. Cody, that was a very long way to get to a rant about CPR. Yeah, everyone should have learned some stuff about CPR. Thank you, Cody. I just don't you. Are, Thank don't you, you for you that positivity the after that sad story. There's there's judo books from something. the 17th century talking about you know. CPR? That's fine. A man died, Cody. I mean, I know he's still alive, <laughs> but he died inside. His career died. Betrayed now, by Chris Glover. I'm glad I know fact about jujitsu. I'm just fascinated by the fact that even he was like, yeah, he just called me and was just whining about his hair. I still want to know how they cut his own hair without his permission. <laughs> did he just wake up and make us hair with scissors? No! Once they start cutting, you don't stop. They've got scissors. And to I've what end? I've been ends? in a situation where I have been shaved uh, involuntarily. Oh, 3D's going to get some. Evil Billy Zane. Just thinking about the time he will tempt Dick Miller. Can we have a uh, Billy Zane Appreciation Month? <laughs> oh, we'd have so many films to choose from. Uh, I make you guys just watch Titanic over and over again. Of course. Uh, could you imagine our three films being Titanic, Demon Knight, The Phantom? Yeah, pretty three much. different shades of Zane. <laughs> if there's another Shades of Grey movie that comes out, we can just put that out as our coverage. Fucking in love Zane. Heroic Zane. Evil Zane. We just talk about his character on Twin Peaks. 
I'm the man who wanted nothing more than to teach Audrey Horn about love. Marty, you're a murderer. I feel like it enriches your life to, uh, whenever you can, just imagine that a future you is always right behind you, saving you from peril. <laughs> just let me die! As, but before the moment of your death, you don't know if you're going to be able to time travel at the end. You don't know I, what kind of damage you're getting assume, yourself out of right now. I just assume I won't be time traveling in the future, but maybe I'm wrong. So, how many films can we think of where they filmed parts two and three back-to-back? Well, that's definitely Matrix Revolutions and Reloaded, I believe. Yep. Uh, there's the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, second and third entries. Ah, Monster. The uh, two, three uh, uh, Richard Lester Musketeer movies, which inspired this. Oh, there yeah. was uh, Superman 1 and 2 were basically filmed together, although they had to fire Donner and refilm Big old chunks, too, but, you know, the thought counts. It's funny how often that just doesn't really work. It's funny, you look at, like, bad stories like that, then you look at the Lord of the Rings movies, which were three films shot simultaneously, and you can't say that wasn't to those movies' uh, benefit, especially with how much reshooting they had to do immediately afterwards. Yeah. And those were three movies that were also being rewritten simultaneously, <laughs> day to day. Like, it was I think an epic clusterfuck in film history, and it gave us those movies. <laughs> I think it, it really helps that uh, The Lord of the Rings, I mean, those were all filmed at the same time. All three were filmed pretty much at the same time. So they didn't have time to reevaluate what they'd done in the first movie. It was just, oh, people like the first one, which is good, because the first one is essentially the second and third one. Where something like The Matrix, they had that huge hit in the first movie, and then you sit back and you go, well, now what do we do? And I think filmmakers hurt themselves by trying to replicate the magic, but maybe taking in new directions. Oh, Zemeckis has talked, Yeah, Zemeckis has talked about this too. Like, sequels are hard. People want to see the same stuff again, but they're going to be angry if you give them the same stuff. So somehow, you have to give them something that's familiar but new. And if there have been years since you established yourself on the first project... You're probably going to second guess yourself. You're probably not going to get the right parts correct, or the magic just won't be there. Yeah, as much as silly as it sounds, saying it about this movie, which the integral part is revisiting the thought of the first, you can't really accuse this of just being Back to the Future all over again. No, this is not a Ghostbusters 2 situation. No, even the third movie, which apes the first one very much is a completely different movie also with you know the parts two and three which sucks is i mean you're writing those two together so they function as a whole but then they feel separate from the first part so you end up kind of making your middle entry feel like it's just episode and and not a full story by itself which is just kind of the nature of the beast i think even if all the stories are tied together very closely, or in Back to the Future's case, this picks up immediately after one finishes. Like, there's there's no gap. We actually see seconds of the ending of one replayed and remade. But they're just the pause in making it separates them, and audiences can feel that. 
well, hell, look at the Matrix trilogy where it's the middle one that feels like a fully fleshed out sequel and the third movie that just feels like weird filler. <laughs> I think I think the Matrix is the only film series to end on filler. Yeah. I think it's all like also in just basic structure because most uh, a lot of, there there's a lot more sequels now that where you know two and three is filmed back to back or simultaneously uh, than there used to be. Uh, the difference between I think a lot of those working and a lot of those not in one direction or another um, just comes down to. A two can end on a cliffhanger, but is it is that movie still a complete story that just ends on a cliffhanger that will then is just the setup for the third movie you're gonna see in like six months? Like the problem with this one is pretty much everything in this only makes full sense setup wise if you watch the third movie. Yeah. Because the third movie is the third act. You you get, like, the Pirates movies. Dead Man's Chest feels like a complete movie that ends on a cliffhanger that still has, like, tons of, like, dark setup stuff for three. Um, you know, dangling plot threads and whatnot. But it, it's more of, like, the Empire Strikes Back kind of way. And Empire just is the same. It's a closed movie that has dangling threads and then a cliffhanger. Or even something as recent as Infinity War. I mean, the Russos have, have flat out said, no, Infinity War isn't part one of a two-part movie. Infinity War is a fully self-contained, complete movie that just happens to end with the bad guy winning. Yeah. Well, I would say with stuff like the Marvel films, audiences are more accustomed now to a kind of episodic nature in their films. Now, they're way more forgiving. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I imagine when this comes out, it's kind of an insult. Like, God damn it, I just paid to watch a full movie, and it ends on a trailer for the next part? What the fuck, guys? And the trailer came later. Like, um, like audience were pissed, like, about this. And Zemeckis wanted it very clear in marketing that, hey, this is a, you know, a part one. Part three's coming later. Like, kind of almost... You also must have to advertise them at the same time, like let an audience know that, you know, they're not being gypped off and studio didn't really go for that. So when to be continued comes up, the audience just felt confused and angry because, you know, movies didn't do that back then. Right. Especially with a movie that kind of always feels like it's building towards something it never delivers on. Because yeah. again, you you cut the third act and out of it and made it an entire movie. Another thing that's frustrating here is Marty gets the almanac back and beats Biff, but it's not through anything that he learned on this adventure. It's it's not like he had a character development part that allows him to have the inner strength or knowledge or skills to be better than Biff. He he just kind of tries again at the cat and mouse stuff until he succeeds, and then. Doc bails him out by showing up at the last second. Which, I wrote this down, so I have to say it, makes the ending a bit of a do-X Doc enough. I'll be here all week. If only we could foley in the sound of crickets. (laughs) 
the rest of the commentary is just going to be silence as that wonderful pun just drifts in the air. But yeah, I, I do think you're right. That's uh, one of the things that keeps the very tail end of this movie from popping like it really should is, again, it just feels like that was the action beat before the finale, not the finale. Yeah. Right. And all these things, this is crazy to me, everything feels so much better in part three. Like, it, it, there's actual resolution for the characters. Marty gets through things by learning and adapting to his situations, and you know he picks up lessons from the other people around him. By by deferring all those pieces to part three, they made three strong, but they, they made two pretty spindly. And it's a bummer they couldn't have shifted or made some other little thing for Marty to do in two that made that arc seem like it was working better. No, not Biff's Pleasure Palace. Hey, the matchbooks. George sure. McFly committed. <laughs> George McFly, <laughs> not in part three. I love how that apparently Hilldale is just obsessed with commending people who do things in the town. I like how Nixon was in was president forever, like it was Watchmen for some reason. I always wonder, was that inspired by Watchmen? It is possible. It you know what really fucks me up about the first movie? Conceivably, when Marty's badassing around Hilldale, grooving to Huey Lewis, he could just walk into a newsstand and pick up the first issue of Watchmen because that would have been on the stands at that time. That is crazy. It's what? weird whenever you think of bullshit movie 80s actually being the 80s and, and other shit happening at the same time. Didn't Gale actually um, write comics? Uh, I oh, know. It was conception. He didn't write them. He just ate them. It was a compulsion. Oh. Just Horrifying TLC special. Here's an idea. I, I don't know if this would work or not or make audiences at the time more forgiving. But what if this ended on, like, a real face punch of a cliffhanger? Like, the lightning strikes the DeLorean, explodes, and they go, To be continued! Instead of having the scene where the guy drives up and delivers the letter to let Marty know, Oh, you gotta go back to the past. Honestly, like, I've felt this for years and years. What you do with this ending is, you just have Marty read it silently and then walk off excited, and then you just cut to Doc in the Old West. That would probably play better than this awkward confrontation in the rain. Really, I would argue this is the greatest uh, ending film scene in cinematic history. I love everything about it. I'm this. not saying it's not incredible. I, why are they like throwing red herrings like this guy's gonna murder Marty? <laughs> like, we have a lot five of seconds for your character. Do some interesting shit. There's a lot of mysterious midnight detectives in this series. So just to uh, follow up on something I said earlier, Bob Gale has written comic books. Uh, Bob Gale has written comics, including Marvel Comics' Ant-Man's Big Christmas, DC Comics' Batman. In 2001, Gale had a short run on Daredevil. Um, she, Wow, David Mack actually did covers for that run. Um... In 2008, Gale worked as one of the writers among the rotating writer artist teams on The Amazing Spider-Man. When it was being published three times a month. So he's written Batman, Spider-Man, Daredevil. 
Damn, he has accomplished. So, I would say that might actually be a, um... Oh, yeah, he's written the IDW Back to the Future comics as well. Oh, that just oh, makes yeah. sense, then. Which I, sh- I should say, it's made canon in those comics by Bob Gale that George McFly was shot by Red the Bum. Or, or I should say, by Red Biff? the Bum went down for... <laughs> For Biff's murder, which is the funniest fucking thing in the world. I know the innocent centerpiece of this trilogy. Going oh, down for Biff's crime. He uh he wrote Batman Chronicles in the nineties. Wow. He wrote that's the impressive. first he wrote the first storyline of the major crossover Batman No Man's Land. Damn, he's part of comics history then. No wonder this series is so goddamn comic books. <laughs> One day I'm going to send you this letter, Mike. <laughs> After I've disappeared in a flash of lightning, leaving a fiery 99 in the sky. Jamie's alive! I mean, she's in 1885, but she's alive! <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing I can do about this. <laughs> I'm going to go have a malt. And I become Look, god of chocolate. the 50s. Also, uh, Mr. McFly, I want you to know if things don't work out with this Emmett Brown, I'll be waiting at the Sizzler. <laughs> the heroism. I like them just going, fuck it, we'll just show you the awesome ending of the first movie again. <laughs> you liked that, didn't you? Here it is. So, uh, you guys uh, remember the ultimate showdown of Ultimate Destiny? Oh, yes. So the the musician behind that, uh, Lemon Demon, does fantastic mashups of different songs, and and one of them was the Power of Love, and I I don't even remember what it was mixed up with, but I, I listened to it about a week ago, and it's been stuck in my head since then, and I'm, I'm I'm so mad, I just I want it to go away. I don't want to hear Huey Lewis in my dreams anymore. I like how that's your cliffhanger ending. That's just having fucking Huey Lewis stuck in my head forever. I think it's a circle of hell, and I like Huey Lewis. <laughs> I don't care what he says, it's not hit to be square. I still say it as a missed opportunity to not have called this movie back from the future. What would they call the third one? Back. To the future from the further past. Really rolls off the tongue. I like it. Future to the back. Just sounds like what just sounds like a porn title. Back to back futures. Oh, hey, we're watching the third one. Hey! Weird highlight reel. It's not even a trailer. Like, it doesn't give you any sense of story. Just here's some action beats in the old west. Enjoy. The point is, it whet your appetite for that third movie when you were a kid. (laughs) Fucking <laughs> Doc and his future gun.
I just love how ZZ Top hits a money <laughs> shot. <laughs> I like how it's just a sizzle reel for literally the entire fucking movie. Yeah, you, you do see a lot exposed here. <laughs> like, they could just have done the photograph. Yeah. They must have had an idea that people were going to be pissed. Zemeckis makes that very clear in the commentary. He was very concerned about that. Yeah, well, uh, going back to what I said at the start of the, the commentary here. Oh, featuring Flea. <laughs> in the credits, it doesn't even have his full goddamn name. Uh, Are you talking about his name is Flea? He's just, like a just Flea. Yeah, the, the second week box office drop was huge, 56%. So the movie opened huge, but its end numbers were actually a bit of a drop-off from expectation. And I I think Zemeckis would agree. The idea that people were surprised and finding out, oh, this is a part one of two, really threw them off and just kind of killed their box office. I don't know. Sure, maybe they could have raised awareness beforehand and people would have been more accepting of it. I don't know. Maybe they're saving their money. I saw this movie once, and the sequel's coming out in six months. I'll just wait. I don't need to see it again. Well, with home video new, you know, if, if it's if people walk away feeling gypped because I don't know if even the trailer was originally on there, but they walk away feeling gypped by uh, a sudden ending, and they weren't aware of that going in. Home video's new. I could see an easy like. Bad worth amount. Like, oh, just wait for it when the third one comes out. Just watch, you know, just go rent the rent the tape. Well, hell, look at not too long ago when people were furious over Halo Two having a cliffhanger ending. Yeah, like, that is the surefire way to sour an audience immediately, no matter how good uh, what they've seen is. Or, or think of uh, the Walking Dead with the whole "Who is Negan gonna kill?" Find out next season. <laughs> Yeah, I think they lost a lot of viewers on that episode. Well, dumb is just dumb. <laughs> and that, was, that was that wonderful moment of the internet collectively going, oh, they're clickbaiting TV shows now. That's nice. Yeah. That's, that's the Biff Tannen future we live in. I don't like the future. We don't even yeah, hoverboards. Fuck things up for us, Marty McFly. I don't like the... You have crippled yourself racing needles. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Honestly, it seemed like I mean, Needles had his shit together, though. I mean, I know he's doing crime still in the future, but he seemed oh, nice. He has good crime. hobbies. That's okay, crime. I want to know what's going on in this universe where Biff and Needles can become rich corporate dudes with control over the McFly family. President Trump. We live in that world now. You think Needles, like, there was, like, a Needles Jr. in that world as well? Uh, this like is, the, I'm Needles. That he had a daughter. Pinpricks. <laughs> wow, 3D It will never not be weird to see. Top billing there. I'm sorry. <laughs> it will never not be weird to see. And as Jennifer, Elizabeth Shue. Look, there's Isn't a that random? video game boy. <laughs> like, that is like some Marvel level. Let's just throw a name actor in here just because. 
the weirdest credit ever. George McFly and and put it from Back to the Future. (laughs) Papa does love Mambo. Oh, I missed a Smurfs clip somewhere in there. And Oprah. Wow, Geraldo was in here. I'm going to be honest, for the media they picked to represent the 80s, they were pretty accurate. Yeah. So, that was Back to the Future Part 2. I'm going to now pretend I never have to watch this again and move on to the Back to the Future 3 I know and love. (laughs) Well, years of entertainment programming have made it where any time I see the end credits to Back to the Future 2, I have the overpowering urge to go get a drink sit down with a TV dinner, and watch Back to the Future Part 3. <laughs> Is that what we're going to be doing right now, Jamie? Uh, if we can tune this to the TNT network, I'm sure it's just beginning. <laughs> Let's warm up a hungry man's. <laughs> I'm, I'm civilized. I have a Taco Bell burrito sitting in my fridge, sir. <laughs> that cold. I will Anyways. eat my dirt meat in peace. Mm, yum. I was actually really, really disappointed. There's supposed to be uh, steak rattlesnake burritos at Taco Bell right now. Mine did not have them on the menu, and I was too afraid to ask if they had them. And I I went away so disappointed with my shitty regular burrito. I thought you were going to say, there was not the slightest trace of rattlesnake venom in that burrito. (laughs) Oh, baby. Imagine the kick. Now I'm even more disappointed that that's not a thing. Look, when I go to Taco Bell, it's because I want to (laughs) die. (laughs) <laughs> I think You're that's how everyone wrong. feels. <laughs> right? They deliver now. They can bring death to my house. Anyways, folks, I'm sure you're sick and tired of hearing me talk about Tex-Mex. If not, there's a podcast for that. It's called I Don't Have a Good Name, so uh, we'll ad-lib one later. But this has been Box Office Pulp and Back to the Future Part 2. Make sure to join us for our commentary on Part 3 coming later this March. Uh, if you want to listen to our other shows that are currently available now... Just look up Box Office Pulp. We're on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter. You name it, if it says Box Office Pulp, it's probably us. I hope. If not, we gotta call some people. Anyways, thanks for listening. That's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. Did you bang a gong at the end there to I, I signal the end desk. of the show? <laughs> I, I knocked on the wood of my desk like a very official, and now we're done, gavel. I was going to say, we can just make that a part of the show. Everybody get out of here. Gong! Leave! Yeah, but if, so Cody does, if Cody does it too many times, though, it's going to rouse a ghost. <laughs> you don't need that to deal with. Eh. Editing's hard enough without fucking whales that only show up in the recording. <laughs> or a Japanese ghost all hanging out on our shoulders. I like the idea of our show being haunted by whales. That's so <laughs> <laughs> Shamu, no! Uh, he's so large! This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.